Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now save $30 on the American-made steel FS56 RCE trimmer. Real steel. The FS56 RCE is made in America of U.S. and global materials. Offer valid through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real Steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue-colored glasses. This show will be talking about the long, winding, and strange road that is the 2023 MLS playoffs, the 45-minute Americans, rankings the U.S. men's national teams in history. Oh, yeah, we're going to do it. Uh, John Gotti, the New Jersey Red Bulls, the sports equinox outrage and much more. But first joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you doing on this Monday, October 30th in the year 2023? I am doing well. Back in Los Angeles. Got back late last night. You are back. Uh, you visited your brother, who evidently is living up there in Seattle. How was the trip to Seattle? This was your first time in Seattle? It was, and I loved it. Really? Um, did so many activities, too many to list, but some of the highlights, I did eat at Pike Place. I did go to the top of the Space Needle. I went to the Museum of Pop Culture, uh, read all about Jimi Hendrix, Kurt Cobain, two musicians I know you have very little regard for. <laughs> uh, went to the Museum of History and Industry, learned all about Seattle from the Duwamish Native Americans all the way up to Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos. I took this underground tour of Pioneer Square, learned about the Great Fire, the Alaska Gold Rush. Uh, phenomenal. Terrific city. Had a great time. Now, your brother lives up there. What does he do up there? Uh... He works at the Museum of Transportation in Tacoma. So he's into, into cars? Uh, yes, very or, much so. Or, you know, transportation, right? Yes. Where does he drive? What does someone that's into cars like that drive? Uh, he dr- does drive a Mazda, which right. I know is not that exciting. But well, uh, but no, yeah, he's big on the stuff. I, I think he might end up working at the Peterson Museum Ooh. someday here in Los Angeles. So, so yeah, that's man, his career oh, path. Man. That's awesome. That is awesome. Well, I'm glad you had a good time. It is a, uh, it's a wonderful city. We've had so much fun over the years going there, especially, uh, you know, relative to soccer and the incredible history that it has, as you mentioned, but in particular, when it comes to soccer, it's just, it, it's, uh, it's an amazing, and what, you know, what the Seattle Sounders have meant to that, uh, you know, to that, that community and, uh, and to soccer in general. And that's fair to say, right? You are not a fan of Jimi Hendrix, nor are you a big fan of the grunge era. No. Yes, it's completely fair to say, but you know, we digress. All right. Uh, should we light this candle? Wait, hold on. I got, I got some stuff to watch, right? I can, I can do my stuff too. Uh, and it's real quick. Um, get Gotti new documentary over there on Netflix, John Gotti, uh, you know, uh, mobster. Um, and uh, let's be honest, a celebrity, if you will. And in the age of celebrity, he be, he was one of the first, um, you know, mafia figures to really kind of lean into that 
persona and I guess brand, and it worked for him, even though it was, you know, kind of a very different way to approach things. And again, with a lot of these mafia um, types of documentaries and movies, and there's the the, the glamorization and um, the romanticizing of the lifestyle. And yet, you know, in this documentary, you know, you're seeing people talk about doing horrible, horrible things. So as as cool as they may seem or they are made to seem in movies and in pop culture out there, you know, they're, they're, they're not, they're not nice, nice people. And John Gotti was not a nice person, but he was a fascinating figure. And it goes down, um, you know, how they ultimately, uh, you know, brought him to court, how he got off and then how they, uh, ultimately got him back into court. So I, I, uh, I recommend it. It's fun. And it's not necessarily you're learning everything new but there's a whole lot more nuance and you uh, meet some of the figures that let's be let's be honest they they kind of risk their life to actually go about this uh, i read a book on the gambino crime family a few years ago the paul castellano hit has always fascinated me right outside spark steakhouse yep. uh, boy that was a ballsy move by john Gotti. Huh? i mean that's you know very very that you, you they go into all of that and, you know, how, you know, whether it's informants or people that they're trying to protect or the actual players on the other side from the government perspective and the back and forth between the FBI and the, uh, you know, the local uh, law enforcement and all that. So anyway, um, I recommend that. So, yeah, I think it's called, yeah, I think it's called Get uh, Get Gotti. All right. Now, shall we light this candle? Let's do it. All right. We are into the MLS playoffs. So I know we're going to start there. Where exactly would you like to start? Uh, we'll start in the Eastern Conference, uh, the 1-8 matchup in round one. And we should explain to people, I don't think we've ever done this on the pod. It's a best of three, and there's no aggregate. Uh, it's whoever wins two of the three games advances, regardless of the score lines. And if a match is tied, it goes to penalties, and shootout wins count as a win. Uh, so I don't know how you feel about that format. Well, we I know We haven't a... yet seen it go to penalties in this phase. We saw it go to it in the wild card Correct. game. But it, I first off, Going to penalties to decide a game immediately, I am all for that. Just in soccer in general. I think the, you know, the, the 30 minutes of extra time that you have, um, you know, when we've seen golden goal, we've seen silver goal, we've seen different ways of using it. I just, because especially as a neutral, I don't know about you, Mossy, but I get to the 30 minutes and I just find myself rooting for penalties. I just want that drama ultimately. So let's, you know... Uh, let's not mess around, all right? Let's just go right to what everybody, uh, what a lot of people want to see anyway. But only round one is like that. In subsequent right. rounds, we do have extra time. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's been a big talking point. A lot of vitriol directed towards this format, uh, the best of three, and also the scheduling gap in between games. Philadelphia, New England, which we're going to get to 10 days in between games one and two. I think I think a lot of the criticism criticism is fair, and it's coming from players, it's coming from fans, um, and it's coming from media out there. And you knew that there was going to be some of this, especially when it's something that is is so new, and you can poke holes in it. And and to your point, Mossy, I think one of the, the things that's a little weird, and even this weekend, you know, first off, we're coming, we're recording this on Monday, October thirtieth, and we've just had a weekend. But not everybody is playing. There are going to be games to, that are going to take place today. There's going to be games that are going to take place in, on Wednesday. And this is after a full season where it was so structured and we had those windows. And look, what times we complained about having too much of a good thing in those windows. And now it's, there's no, there seems to be no rhyme or reason as to when teams are playing, the space between games is not uniform. So therefore, again, the question of, you know, what is fair and what isn't fair and how much time do you get to rest and how much time for travel and all that kind of stuff. So it, 
it is a strange, to say the least, type of format that they have come up with. And you, you want to move and you want to evolve relative to what you have learned from, from the past, right? It would not surprise me in the least if a year from now, Masa, we are sitting here on the State of the Union and we are talking about yet another tweak and yet another version of the MLS playoffs. And, I, you know, I get it. This is a work in progress and you're trying to find what is right. But again, we've, we've happened upon something that I don't think is going to last. Well, as for the games themselves, the 1-8 matchup in the East Cincinnati, uh, 3-0 home win over the Red Bulls in Game 1. Barreal scored twice, and Lucho Acosta also found the back net. Impressive performance for these Supporters Shield winners. Yeah, and so all of that uh, you know, positive energy and vibes from the Red Bulls after their wild card game, that went out the window because they came up against a real team, and they had nothing. They had nothing to combat it. And, you know, look, Cincinnati is, you know, an elite team in MLS, and a lot of people are, are picking them to win. They have great players. They, they understand exactly who they are and who they aren't. And they just, they, I think that this was, a, this was a moment where a team that did really well in the regular season, we know that doesn't always uh, translate into the postseason, you felt that they were just licking their chops, waiting for their opportunity to kind of start again. And they came out flying. They didn't look back and they crushed the Red Bulls. And as I said, the Red Bulls had absolutely nothing to counter what Cincinnati was doing. The, and they gifted them uh, a goal too. Although Acosta made that look easier than it was. I, I'm always impressed by these long distance finishes where they perfectly place it in the back I, of the net. I'm not saying that it doesn't take yeah. skill, but you know, if you want to put arguably the MVP of the league, we'll find out soon enough, uh, with a ball from 35, 40 yards out and the goalkeeper has just given it to him and is not in the goal, I'm still putting my money on. I mean, that's what they're, that's what they're paid to do. But you're right. It, it, all of that kind of shuts down and, and it, I guess the world slows down in that moment. And in your mind as a player, you're probably thinking, well, this is easy. I could, I could do this no problem, like a, a field goal kicker or something like that. But then actually executing in that moment, that's what's impressive. The 4-5 matchup in these, Philadelphia 3-1 home win over New England in Game 1. Uh, they scored all three of their goals in the first half, Gazdag, Ura, and Harriel, and then Gustavo Bo pulled one back for New England. So the Union off to a good start in this postseason. And here's another, like just what I said, another Philadelphia team that, you know, they didn't, they didn't cruise through the regular season, but in the way that at times we have talked about them glowingly, um, you know, this is a team that you can see just, understands that the door to the regular season is closed and this other one has opened up and, you know, they came out and, and I, you know, and Jim Curtin, I think had this team prepared. It was a wonderful atmosphere uh, to be fair. There, there were a couple of situations where it was a little disappointing in terms of the crowds, but you know, this one was rocking. And I think they used that, uh, that energy against the New England revolution team that again, it just didn't, didn't seem up for the fight. And this gets into the conversation I'll know we'll, pro we'll probably have is what is the mentality of teams? And it was discussed in real time by you know, many of the commentators as to, all right, this game's getting out of hand or this, team, this game is getting away from you. And since there's no real um, repercussion for, for losing other than the actual loss, do you just say, look, We'll live to fight another day and we'll go on to that next game because you have that opportunity for that next game. Or do you just throw all caution to the wind and go for it? And I think at, at times we saw the, the, the teams say, 
we'll live to fight another day and we'll just get out of here with whatever we can get out of here. And because we have that opportunity, we're going to use it. Uh, the other two series in the East have not begun yet. We're taping this on Monday morning yep. tonight. Orlando City hosts Nashville. And then on Wednesday, Columbus hosts Atlanta. Uh, transitioning to the West, uh, the 1-8 matchup there. We all flagged this. We all thought there was some upset potential here. And SKC promptly went into St. Louis, a 4-1 away win in game one. Dembe, Voltaire, Kinda, and Shallowy with their goals. Parker scored for St. Louis. What a result huh, for SKC. Huge result. I mean, SKC has not been great on the road, and yet they went in, and Peter Vermes and company, um, they were all over them. Long-distance shooting, which is not necessarily something that uh, is a priority in the game today, that was certainly on, uh, on offer in, uh, in St. Louis. And again, 250 miles separating these two uh, clubs, but a lot of points separating these two clubs and very different types of seri- uh, seasons behind them. But Sporting KC, wow, this is a huge, huge result. Now, this also gets into the mentality of and the and the reality of what the uh, playoffs playoffs are. Because in this moment, had this happened a year ago, where it's the one game and that's it, this St. Louis team that I think we can all agree has had a wonderful season, inaugural season, unprecedented in terms of their success, because they picked the worst possible moment to have a crap game and this, you know, for whatever reason and the soccer gods and all that kind of stuff a year ago, they would have been done. And everybody would have been looking around saying, well, what the hell happened? Now they still might not recover from this because this is not a good loss, but because they have the three games to play with, they are, they are still in it. And if this happens again, you know, then you have to really start questioning it. Um, you know, because this St. Louis team is much better than they showed. And probably to be fair, this Sporting KC team is um, is as good as they showed and maybe even at times even better. And now now they're feeling it. And this is where that that new chapter of the playoffs completely can redefine how you think about yourself. Because St. Louis is looking around and going, whoa, hold on. This isn't what we thought this was going to be. And we were riding down this road and everything was great and everybody loved us. And then the bet. And it, there's no other way to say it. This was a horrible, horrible performance from a much better team than St. Louis showed. And now it puts themselves in a difficult situation where Sporting KC, now because of the format, they get to actually host a home game. And that's part of the reason why this was done. And they have an opportunity to finish off St. Louis like that as the eighth seed. And we, you know, we talked about, you, you had mentioned last week about how this was um, a one versus eight where... Where the one was Where being one. disrespected. Everybody <laughs> was picking the eight. Maybe everybody, you know, uh, saw this coming. I think I saw our good friend Keith Costigan in his bracket before the playoffs has SKC going all the way to MLS Cup. There you go. I mean, you know, stranger things have happened. And, and again, this is just a one-game type of situation where it has to be said everything went well for, uh, for Kansas City. And, you know, St. Louis, like I said, is a better team, but they better get their shit together and figure it out or they'll be out. And then then you start thinking about, well, was it a successful season? I, I think everybody will, regardless of what happens, will say this was not just a successful season, but a historical successful regular season. But when you follow it up with a potentially going out and going out in this manner, yeah, it's going to dampen the spirits a little bit. The 4-5 matchup in the West, Houston claimed a 2-1 home win over RSL. Hector Herrera scored first, Diego Luna equalized, and then Bassi with the game winner. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that Houston ultimately won this. And when I say I'm glad, I want teams that I feel are better to be rewarded. And, you know, the, the way Real Salt Lake set up in this game, they were batting down the hatches and just deal with the pressure and the amount of possession. And I think at times good possession, not great possession from the Houston Dynamo. I, I think that they were the better team. Hector Herrera has been a... I guess a revelation relative to his very short period last season. And he was, you know, coming to terms with MLS and this whole new world. And I think we've seen the real Hector Herrera here. And even the goal that he uh, that he scores, the ability to take it, take it down and have the ball continue on, even though it's hitting him, and then come back again on that kind of half um half beat of a of a of a volley and and come back and score. It's a really, really nice goal. It doesn't necessarily aesthetically look pleasing, but what he does in that moment to use the ball, to use his body, and then obviously to use his God-given talent to get the the shot off so quickly, um, he's just a great player. And he controls a lot of what happens with Houston. And in this game, he had a lot of possession, and they were just trying to break him down. At times, it got a little predictable, and at times, it got a little, uh, let's be honest, boring, but I think that Ben Olsen will look at this game and be happy that they won, but also be thankful because when Real Salt, when Real Salt Lake scored that, uh, that, that goal to tie it, I just thought that they were then going to shut up uh, shop and not let anything else, uh, anything else happen. But they came back and uh, got a good win. Uh, the 2-7 matchup, Seattle-Dallas, uh, game one is tonight. Uh, much to my chagrin, by the way, because I was staying right. very close to Lumen Field. Had that game been this weekend, I would have definitely attended. Uh, there was a Seahawks game on Sunday against the Browns, so... Yeah, they're working to... around some ML, uh, and, uh, and, uh, NFL stuff, yeah. Yeah, So, uh, but I got to see what the atmosphere is surrounding a Seahawks game. Everybody was dressed up, walking to the stadium. Um, the 3-6 matchup, LAFC... 5-2 home win over Vancouver. Uh, Buanga and Hollings had each with two goals. This game was 2-2 at the half, and then LAFC scored three unanswered in the second half. Yeah, I, I felt like LAFC never really got out of second or third gear, and yet they ultimately didn't need to when you have someone like Buanga who just feasts and his quickness and his finishing ability. And it's not often we come on air and say uh, a brace by Ryan Ryan's Hollings head although you know he finds a way to get involved uh in the uh, in the offense and he's got a nose for goal I think I saw a Matt Doyle tweet called him the best uncapped American ever Ooh, yeah for whatever reason it never happened for him with the national team yeah, but uh, very timing good timing and you know so many things go into getting called up or when you get called up um but look for LAFC I, we had said before that I didn't think that they were going to have a problem with the Vancouver Whitecaps. And even at two to two, I didn't necessarily feel like there was a problem, but you know, they did what they needed to do. And the, you know, other than um, what we just talked about with Sporting KC, when it comes to the home, uh, home teams, it played out the way it normally does. And we didn't go in that order, but that was the last game played. So up until that match, right. the home teams success was the big theme of the playoffs so far and then skc kind of blew that up yep, yep. um all right so uh those are the uh mat- matchups from the weekend there are some games today and what is a jam-packed sports day as joe pompliano pointed out on twitter <laughs> uh i guess this is a term called the sports equinox okay uh but he defines it as when the four major sports leagues in the united states mlb nba nfl 
and NHL all hold games on the same day. It's happening today for the only time in 2023, and it's only the 29th time it's ever happened. However, uh, Stu Holden, who we know has been very agitated on Twitter of late, he went after Emmanuel Atro about the Caleb Williams thing, also <laughs> went after Joe Pompliano uh, for this uh, tweet. He said, MLF playoffs are tonight, and the league is coming off a record attendance season that surpassed hockey. It's five major sports, but if you're going with four, we can drop hockey. Ooh, now, right. Pompliano has since responded. He said, this sports equinox concept is something that predates MLS. So he wouldn't be able to say it's the blank all-time uh, time it's happened if he was to include MLS. He also pushed back on the notion that soccer is overtaken hockey. He provided a bunch of numbers, revenue, and the, with a TV deal, and total attendance, too, was going by average attendance. So then it devolved into sort of an MLS versus NHL debate. <laughs> Nevertheless, this all caught your attention this morning. It caught my attention because that's what it's designed to do, is to catch my attention. Um, and this is exactly what Pompliano, is that his name? Correct. He's not the only one. I think a, a bunch of different accounts have, have tweeted this almost as a coordinated attack, if you will. And I say attack because, look, you know, I, I have stopped being outraged um, when soccer in America is disrespected, either by you know people involved in soccer or people not involved in soccer, traditional media, um, fans, anybody else out there. Uh, but ultimately, being disrespected by Americans. And it is a disrespect. And, you know, these, these slights that are happening, in the past you could excuse them you know, because people didn't know a whole lot about soccer. And let's be honest, we talk about it all the time, what soccer was back in the days of the equinox when it was first you know, contemplated and what it is now is, is night and day. But nowadays, and whether it's... Jumping Joe, is his name Joe? Pompliano, whatever. Yeah, Pompliano, yeah. Whether it's uh, Pompliano or anybody else, um, these types of takes, they're no longer out of ignorance. Everybody understands what soccer is. Everybody knows what Major League Soccer is. Um, it is just a level of the other sports yet? No, but there is a, an understanding. And when it comes to the, uh, the younger generation, if you will, you know, they look at soccer like anything else. doesn't mean that they don't complain. It doesn't mean they don't, they don't criticize soccer. But they look at soccer as part of their sports palette. And a lot of the media, um, whether they're, if they're old, then they're just dinosaurs and they're going to die off. But when these types of things come out, um, rather than, you know, being, like, like I said, um, out of just a complete ignorance to what's going on, I think these are purposely defiant. I think that they are uh, provocative. Um, and I think ultimately they're insecure type of reactions to the inevit inevitability, if you will, of soccer, Mossy. Um, and so I can scream and yell about it. And it's, and it's fun. It's great catnip to soccer folks out there and the anti-soccer brigade that still, let's be honest, um, exists out there. But, you know, if it's uh, you, you know, this guy or anybody else, have at it, you know, go down swing, but you're going to go down. And there is absolutely an argument argument to be made relative to soccer. And in this particular case, relative to Major League Soccer, which, by the way, <laughs> is playing tonight. So that's what makes it kind of more, I guess, irritating to to folks uh, to folks out there. But again, this is exactly what it is designed to do. And we have fallen into it hook, line and sinker. And I 
you know, I, I can fall into that just like, just like anybody else. But, you know, again, these are, these are dinosaurs that are worried that the world of sports is going in a direction that either they don't want it to go in or they feel they can't exist in. And in that case, they will become extinct. What's interesting to me is every hockey fan I've ever met, I know hockey is a sport you have a lot sure. of time for growing yep. up in Michigan. Yep. Um, they have a chip on their shoulder. They feel disrespected relative to the other three. Mm -hmm. So now you have soccer coming at them from a different direction. So in this soccer versus hockey battle, you actually have two fan bases that have a chip on their shoulder and an inferiority complex arguing with each other about it, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, but they are always still included in the, the four. And I think that's what you right. know, Stu's point was there. If it's four, okay, fine. But you absolutely can make arguments relative to hockey. And look, I, I grew up playing. I love hockey. Um, I, I look at it as one of my major sports out there. But I don't think it's too much to ask in 2023 that when you are doing something relative to the major sports and the major sports leagues out there to include, include MLS. And I don't think that, that you become any less credible by doing something like that. And I also don't think that you're pandering. There's certain folks out there that will feel that, why are you throwing in soccer? You know, it's not traditional. It's not American and all that kind of stuff. Well, it's 2023. And guess what? Traditions and cultures change, and certainly ours has relative to sports. And soccer is as American as anything else when it comes to sports out there. Now, you know Stu well. Sure. Uh, what's going on with him? Seems very combative <laughs> on Twitter of late. I love, I love when Stu gets, uh, get, gets riled up. And, you know, while, while I'm not outraged about it and then I'm not screaming and yelling and saying this is the worst thing, I do appreciate and respect whether it's Stu or anybody else kind of, you know, coming to the aid and defending soccer. And maybe I've just been doing it a whole lot longer and I kind of pick and choose my, uh, my moments and my hills, uh, hills to die on. Uh, and the soccer e or the, uh, the sports equinox is not one that, uh, that I care to do it, but you know, maybe someone like Stu can pick it up and fight the good fight, which he, uh, which he certainly is right now. That is it. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we got all sorts of stuff that happened uh, around the world, including over there in Europe and some Americans and uh, how much or how little they play. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, Right now, you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Okay, welcome back. Uh, let's check out some Americans abroad. Uh, and there were plenty of them running around. Uh, not for the entire game, but uh, where should we start, Mossy? We begin in Italy, the big one there. Napoli hosted AC Milan. Both Pulisic and Musa started. AC Milan were up 2-0 at the break, thanks to a pair of goals by Olivier Giroud. Pulisic assisted the first of those two. He was playing well. Unfortunately, he picked up a minor muscle injury and was taken off at halftime as a precaution. Napoli came storming back. Politano scored a great goal to make it 2-1. And then Raspadori with a free kick. 2-2 the final. Musa went all 90 minutes. Yeah, so from an American perspective, I mean, we've talked about this. The only thing that can derail Christian Pulisic's continued evolution is, is injuries. And look, I, 
we don't know ultimately what this is and it was precautionary and you know hopefully it was done with an you know an overabundance of caution relative to um future gains so knock on wood it's nothing serious uh but you know he he was subbed off but not before he did some damage put in a really nice ball to Giroud, who i think probably looked around and said i can't believe i'm so wide open and i'm gonna put this in you know in swingers and out swingers there's a whole conversation to be had about you know what the best best ones are in this one where it's curling away all that drew ultimately has to do is uh is touch it and uh and it goes in so from a Christian Pulisic perspective, still a a good day. From a from AC Milan perspective, though, Mossy, you know they had it in the in the palm of their hands, and they let this one get away. And so I think that they will be they will be disappointed. Uh, uh, you mentioned um, Yunus Musa; he was involved throughout the game, and again, I think he has now done what we thought he was going to do, where he has shown himself to be of such quality that he is a starter, and at this point, he's a ninety minute player. I have to point out, though, Sean Sullivan is somebody who usually uh, critiques U.S. fans for dodgy assists. And yet he put in the rundown Musa with the hockey assist on the second goal. Did you see the play? Yeah, yeah. He tries to dribble past the defender. The ball gets poked away into the path of Calabria, who crossed it to Giroud. Heads it in. in what world does Musa get any sort of assist on that? It almost as if everyone was kind of looking at Musa when he went off to that, uh, that right side of the, uh, of the field. And he was doing all sorts of moves and, and really kind of doing quick stuff. And nobody was changing or move or, or he wasn't really doing anything. And that's, let's be honest, out strung out wide for Musa isn't really his game. That's not what we look to him to do. But yeah, we are being, um, you know, incredibly benevolent, if you will, to associate him with that goal. I mean, I guess he got the ball down in the area that ultimately resulted in the cross. So yeah, uh, I'll still give him credit because... He's American, and, I'm, and I'll wear that on my sleeve. Sean, a little bit off his game right now. He's planning a wedding. It's yes. right around the corner. You know, he's got a lot going through his, through his mind. Uh, Timmy Way, incidentally, picked up an injury in Juve's win over Verona, and there are reports swirling that he's going to miss the November games uh, against TNT, those Nations League games. So uh, we, we will not have all the U.S.'s attacking players all at once. It, it never happens. <laughs> Evidently, we're never going to ultimately see Greg Berhalter have to make the choice right. that we all kind of want to see what he will do. Although it wouldn't have happened here anyway because Adams is obviously no, a long-term yeah, absence. Ex- exactly. But, it, you know, it, it, then it, now it raises the question, okay, um, but do you put Gio Reyna out there on the right or do you like him now in the center without Tyler Adams there? And why, are you keeping him there or do you put him out more, uh, more on the right? Anyway, he was, uh, Gio Reyna and, and others were a bunch of players uh, from an American perspective that got subbed out after 45 minutes, some because of injury and some because of coaching decisions ultimately. So you, you don't like to see it, but I, don't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have red, you know, sirens going off all over the place yet. Well, we'll go there next. In Germany, Eintracht Frankfurt, uh, Borussia Dortmund, crazy 3-3 draw. Gio Reyna finally made his first start of the season, but then came off at halftime. And it's never clear with him. Do you think this is a minutes restriction or this was a coaching decision by Terzic? No, I think this is a coaching decision. <laughs> I, I No. Uh, it was not going well. Uh, and it was a, a crazy kind of erratic game that ultimately ended up 3-3. And I just think that there was a recognition that I mean, it's not a, it's not blaming Reina, but that this was not going to be the game that 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 he kind of needed to start, and so I think that that was, you know, again, just I have to make a change. 
it's not like Reyna is controlling the game and he's the one that, that is going to ultimately decide this. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it was the, I think it ultimately was the right move. I think both Dortmund and Frankfurt look, will look back on that game and say, how do we let that kind of get away? And so I guess in, in that sense, it's fair that each took a point. Bayern Munich, meanwhile, squeaked by Darmstadt uh, 8-0. <laughs> uh, they actually had Joshua Kimmich sent off in the opening minutes of this game, but then Darmstadt had a player sent off shortly thereafter, so it basically became 10 versus 10. Uh, yeah, Harry more Kane, space, more yes. space for the incredible uh, Bayern Munich attack. Right. Harry Kane scored a hat-trick, including a goal from the halfway line. Uh, he has 14 goals and 7 assists in 13 matches in all competitions this season. Well, I mean, we knew he was going to score, and we knew he was going to score relative to oftentimes the inferior opposition that they are that they are playing. Look, it, it doesn't matter though. Still, a goal from midfield and, and even beyond that is a work of art. Many of the greats uh, have hap- uh, have done that in the past, and so the ability and the technical ability to be able to hit that first off to see it, and then actually hit it. That's uh, that's pretty impressive. But ultimately, for Kane and for for uh, Bayern Munich, this was a glorified training exercise. Yeah, and they still trail Leverkusen in the table, by the way. Um, we just talked about the Beckham doc, which begins with David Beckham scoring a goal against Wimbledon from the halfway line in 1996. They frame it as if that really launched him into stardom. And here's another Englishman, Harry Kane, doing the same. Well, he doesn't. He's already been launched <laughs> well before, but... You know, but again, but anybody that goes to Bayern Munich in that position is going to have plenty of the ball, is going to be fed on a consistent basis, and ultimately is going to score a lot of goals. And and that's not poo-pooing what Harry Kane is is doing. But for a for a player playing at Bayern Munich and for a striker playing at Bayern Munich, you're not really going to be judged by what you do ultimately in the Bundesliga. I'm not saying it's not important, and I'm not saying that they they can't lose the title. If you look at the history of what's happened, you're ultimately going to be judged by what you do against much better competition. We just talked about Harry Kane, David Beckham, staying with the Englishman theme. We hop over to Spain, Real Madrid with a 2-1 come-from-behind win over Barcelona in the Clásico. Barcelona took a first-half lead through, through Il- Ilkay Gundogan. And then Jude Bellingham struck twice in the second half, a long-distance strike to make it 1-1. And then in stoppage time, he bursts into the box, gets on the end of a cross, uh, 2-1 the final. Jude Bellingham, 13 goals in 13 matches in all competitions this season. All right. So, I mean, we're, we're running out of words to talk about Jude Bellingham. And for those that listen to the show on a consistent basis, we'll know that even back when this started from Jude Bellingham, there was a belief that this could not last. This was not sustainable. And he, <laughs> he continues to not only sustain it, and again, the only thing I think at this point that could pose problems is god forbid an injury and i don't want that for him or for anybody out there but right now we're seeing one of the great players uh the rolling stones uh, in the stadium they had a a sponsor uh, because barcelona does kind of one game off sponsorship on the uh on their shirts and they had the uh the rolling stones logo which looked cool but ultimately it was in a effort that uh, that was a loss. So they they will forever be associated with a Classico loss for Barcelona, the Stones. And because it's Jude Bellingham, hey Jude, a lot of people turn this into a Beatles versus Rolling Stones theme. Yep. And you think the Beatles are the superior band yes. of those two, right? Yes, I prefer the Beatles. I did not like the um, the blues uh, 
part of the Stones catalog. I thought it was derivative and I, that not at all interesting. However, when the Stones are good, they are great. Their new album is wonderful. They continue in, at the age of 80 plus to be making relevant rock music that I want to listen to. It is awesome. But I think ultimately the Beatles, I think their catalog is better than the Stones. You know, in the 2010 World Cup in South Africa, Mick Jagger showed up and every team he rooted for got knocked out. Like he would pick a team, they would get knocked <laughs> out. Like, he would uh, adopt a different team, they would Drake, get knocked out. Right? It was a running joke in Brazil that he was like the ultimate jinx. And so I thought about that. That joke got kind of revived this weekend with him supporting uh, Barcelona. But a, a couple of thoughts on this game. First off, um, we've talked about how in this sort of post-Messi Ronaldo era, Mbappe and Holland might be the two sort of jockeying for best player in the world status. Do we now definitely have to put Jude Bellingham in that conversation? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean... He's, it's just incredible what he is, what he has done and what he is, uh, is doing and finding different ways to score and against big teams in big moments coming up big. It's, it's, you know, it is, uh, it is fun to see. It was interesting after the game, I don't know if you read the, um, the comments from, uh, Gundogan, uh, who obviously scored, but he was a little miffed that there wasn't more reaction from his team and I guess anger at losing and he couldn't wrap his brain around how people weren't more angry at uh, what had transpired. Yeah. I, I found those comments uh, you know, quite interesting. That's not, that's not good from a mentality perspective. Uh, one last thought on this. Uh, I was not impressed by either team. I did not think this was a great game. And I am increasingly starting to think that Atletico Madrid might be the best team in La Liga this season. I know you were very impressed by their performance yep. against Real Madrid a few weeks back. They've continued to win. They're three points back of Real Madrid, but they've played one fewer game because they had that game against Sevilla canceled for rain the weekend I was in Madrid. Um, but I, I like the way they're playing. A lot of people are saying this is Simona's most expansive team. They're actually playing more attractive football. Griezmann's been great, scoring goals for fun. And so I could see Atletico winning La Liga this season. All right, before we move on, uh, last thing here. Um, your friend Vinny, Vinny Jr., all right? Yeah. He's taking a lot of heat for, I guess, whining and complaining on the field. Do you think that that is fair in terms of the criticism that he's getting right now? Yes. Uh, this has always been one of those uh, two things can be true at one situations where obviously the racism he's subjected yeah, to yeah. is deplorable. But yeah, he, he does have some antics, some petulance on the field that can be annoying and aggravating. And he does need, although he's gotten much fewer yellow cards this season than he did last season. So he's improved in that regard. But yeah, kind of that bad side came out this weekend. I mean, every time he gets the ball, he's throwing himself on the ground and yelling at the referee and yelling at Xavi. And it, it was a bit much. But there are, he is targeted and rightfully so. He's a great player. He's really fast. And especially the recognition from Barcelona that if he gets out in that space, it could be problematic, could be problematic, but he, he does certainly play it up. And then when he gets subbed out, he's trying to wind up the crowd. Ancelotti has to go grab him like a parent grabbing a little kid. And right. like, you it's know, not so a good th look. Th that was a little bit embarrassing. It's not a good look. Well, I mean, let's be honest, uh, when it comes to the star of the team, we already talked about it. No question. About it. Yeah. I mean, last season, the Madrid media was trying to put, Vinicius in that Mbappe Holland category and and say that it's a big three and now they're doing it again but with a different player which speaks to the fact that Jude Bellingham has clearly uh, emerged as a star player at Real Madrid uh, so I, we talked about Mbappe uh, and Bellingham we segue to Holland uh, the big one in England the Manchester Derby City with a 3-0 away win over Manchester United Holland scored twice Phil Foden got the other Erlen Holland 11 Premier League goals this season the same as Manchester United as a team 
Uh, so City with a comfortable victory at Old Trafford. I mean, comfortable to say the least. It was it, it was not even. I mean, there was only one one good team on the on the field. And again, Manchester United. We know this isn't a great Manchester United team, but you just expected a little bit more fight from them. And just simple mistakes. Uh, you know, I mentioned on uh, on uh, on X. Um, you know, I was being a smartass or whatever. But even the second Erlen um, Holland goal. He is so wide open. And there's, what, six or seven Manchester United players ultimately in the box when that cross comes into him. But you're not going to mark, you know, one of the great players in the world, one of the great goal scorers in the world, six-foot whatever, blonde dude with a ponytail. It's not like you can miss him. Maybe you should, you know, try being close to him. But that's those are simple mistakes. Those are simple soccer mistakes that Ten Hag's going to have to answer for. City were so superior that they rendered that first penalty decision kind of moot. Uh, We know how much the English like to complain about VAR. That could have been a huge talking point, but everybody felt silly making a big deal about it after the game because they were so superior. And did you think that was a penalty, Hoyland bringing down Rodri on the free kick? It is. And, and, you know, again, I listened to uh, our friend uh, Robbie Musta, who we talked about last uh, last week. I, I disagreed with him in that you can't be a little pregnant. And so, you know, if, or, you know, if you're, if everybody's speeding and you get pulled over, you can't tell the officer, yeah, but everybody else is speeding. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter. But yes, the, the bigger conversation of the fact that there, a lot of this stuff goes on, I, I get it. But we've been having that discussion and using that argument for, uh, for years. And if in the same way that defenders nowadays in the box you just, you know, you better beware that your arms out there, regardless of intent and all that kind of stuff, it hits it. There's a chance that it's going to be called a penalty in the same way that if you do the things that my generation used to do in the box, and while they still do things, it's not even close to what it was, but, you know, the pulling and the blocking and um, the picking that, uh, that goes on out there. Yeah, you could call multiple fouls each and every set piece, each and every corner or free kick that, uh, that comes in. But that doesn't mean that when it happens, as it did, and now we have video evidence of it happening, that when it's called, you can't go, yeah, but everybody else is doing it. Sorry. You, you, know, you, you risk each and every time you grab a hold of somebody or step in front of somebody or do something that, yes, in the, in the relative to the laws, can be considered a, a foul, but it doesn't, it doesn't mean that it's not going to be called. On Manchester United, I'm still workshopping this take, so okay. I don't know what it all means yet, but I've been thinking a lot about this lately. There are clubs like Real Madrid and Bayern Munich that are always great no matter who the manager is. Different managers come and go every few years, and it doesn't matter. Their natural state of yep. being is being a big club. Well, Manchester United were very poor for several years before Sir Alex Ferguson arrived, and now we see what they've become in the decade since he's left. So at what point do we think, well, Manchester United, it was mostly down to him and their natural state as a club isn't necessarily to always be great no matter who the manager is. All right, so let's, let's play this one out. So first <laughs> off, give me a couple of um, examples of these teams that you, that you mentioned that where it doesn't really matter. They're just always in a perpetual state of greatness, I guess it would be. Well, those two, Real Madrid, Bayern right. Munich, Barcelona to some extent. Okay, so if, if you were to take, for example, Real Madrid, th- is there an iconic comp relative to Sir Alex for Barcelona for Barcelona or for Real Madrid. Cruyff, more more I mean, so for Barcelona with Cruyff and Pep. They've had periods where they had a manager who you really felt 
left an incredible mark there. Real Madrid and Bayern, I think, are examples of clubs where, I mean, the the, the manager, you're, you're, it just feels like an employee of the club, you right. know, comes in. And, right. and, but, and, and to your point, Sir Alex's legendary status has only been enhanced right. by the futility that, is, that has occurred after. And so if it all comes down to this guy, while he was already looked at as a god, I mean, it's even even more impressive, ultimately, what he did to keep it together and to keep it together for so long. And so, you know, how can they, how do you, how, do you, how, do, how does Manchester United now become one of those teams? Because they've tried everything and they've spent plenty of money. They've had plenty of talent when it comes to the players on the field and obviously the, uh, the coaching carousel that has happened after Sir Alex, but they haven't found anybody. And so if... If all of a sudden, Mossy, I'll, I'll leave it here. If all of a sudden, um, Klopp said, I'm going to coach Manchester United, you think that that would fix things? Yeah, I think he's that so good? great that, okay. yeah. 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 All right, cool. Uh, one last, last note. Um, Erlen Holland, for all of his goal scoring exploits for City, it looks like he will not win the Ballon d'Or. Uh, the ceremony is tonight. Fabrizio Romano reporting that Messi is going to win for the eighth time. You know, we talked about that sort of eternal country versus club debate. Messi winning the World Cup. Holland winning mm-hmm. the treble with City. Looks like Messi is going to win out. Fabrizio Romano has become to the Ballon d'Or what Adrian Wojciechowski is to the NBA draft. He kind of spoils the suspense because he, he tweets out the winner ahead of time. Well, you know, then how about people stop leaking stuff to him then? I mean, he's doing his job and he's doing a great job. So, so the Ballon d'Or winner, okay. I know where you're going. Plays in Major League That's Soccer, right. right? And yet uh, on this Equinox, we can't even <laughs> get MLS to be involved in the uh, in uh, in the top four or, or you know, add it to top five. That's uh, that's incredible. But uh, is anybody going to complain? I don't think anybody's going to complain. No. You know, with what with what he has done over this past year. It's pretty impressive. Uh, Holland and City, by the way, still looking up at Tottenham in the Premier League table. Tottenham won again, 2-1-0-8 to Crystal Palace. Uh, Chris Richards, an unused sub for Palace. Hung Min Son among the scorers for Spurs. Him and Salah at eight goals are tied for second in the Golden Boot race behind Holland with 11. And I know we've talked about Spurs, but there is this, I, I think it's a wonderful position for Spurs to be in where they... They keep winning. They're at the top of the the, uh, the league, and yet we talk about other things. Right, right. <laughs> we just, uh, which is great because it completely takes the pressure uh, off of them. And I get the feeling, you know, some months down the line, everybody's going to turn around and go, "Wait a second, Spurs are still in first place," and you know, we're screaming and yelling about you know what Pep's doing or or off to this side. But also, uh, they'll come. They'll come. Uh, the others will come up, and it's still a long way to go. That's it. All right, let's take another quick break. When we come back, it's time for Ask Alexi. Don't go away. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie. Formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services. Marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now, you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. 
Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. Okay, welcome back. It's time for Ask Alexi, that part of the show where you send in your comments, questions, and concerns. And you can do it out there on the uh, social media platforms. Keep in mind that our handle is SOTU with Alexi. Uh, or you can call into our State of the Union podcast hotline, which is 657 549 2297. 657 549 2297. All right, Masi, uh, what do the folks want to know this State of the Union? Uh, first up, a question on X. Uh, Mako asks, would rebranding the Red Bulls to a New Jersey team get better attendance? Ooh, this is an evergreen type of question and discussion out there. Um, for those that you know don't know, uh, historically, the New York Metropolitan team has, from a branding perspective, always been associated with New York. And this is nothing new. You look at uh, New York Giants and the New York Jets. Uh, and you know, while they have New York in their brand, they play in New Jersey. And I know we think about the New York metropolitan area with New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. But the question as to what the Red Bulls are and what they want to be going forward, you know, I think that's I think that's interesting. I don't know if they did what you are suggesting and became from a aesthetic and, and branding perspective, New Jersey's team, if they would get better attendance, if they would become more popular. Conventional wisdom, as we know, uh, dictates that the you know, Metro New York sports teams, that you limit yourself if you don't, from a business perspective, uh, from a business perspective, if you don't associate yourself with uh, with New York and this kind of global cachet that New York brings. And like I said, it's been tried and tested. But there is, and there has been for a long time, a part of me that would absolutely love to see Red Bull New York, either somebody else come in or Red Bull New York, but they'd never do it because their brand is so important, be the anti-NYCFC. And NYCFC has their own problems, but they are New York. I mean, literally, they are in New York. If they became, if the Red Bulls became the anti-NYCFC and completely leaned into New Jersey and embraced it and just were like full-on Jersey. Now, in doing that, you risk alienating New York fans, either that exist or potential New York fans, even, you know, Connecticut. But from a historic perspective, when it comes specifically to soccer, um, you're hard-pressed to find an area of the country and a state that has had more talent and more history when it comes to the game. You know, and I guess part of me, and I know others out there, would have kind of loved to have seen, if they could have gotten it done, I think the ship has sailed, but if they could have gotten it done, what the 
Cosmos, not the New York Cosmos, just the Cosmos brand would have done for that, that, uh, that team in an MLS capacity uh, going forward. But, you know, to your point, Mako, I, I don't think that that necessarily dramatically changes any, everything, but I do think that there are a lot of people in New Jersey that would appreciate and would respect that it was specific to the garden state, that it was specific to this incredible state that exists and you weren't sharing, but in doing so you might hurt your, you know, your business potential out there when it comes to, especially the global thinking of how people think of these, uh, these teams and these brands. And if you're in or <laughs> New York adjacent and you don't use, uh, use New York, you might be leaving something uh, on the table there. I'll never forget when the Giants beat the Patriots in the Super Bowl, the second of those two triumphs. Uh, Chris Christie and Mike Bloomberg got into a pissing contest over whether the parade should be in New York or New Jersey. So, yeah, that issue bubbles up from time to time. The fact that these teams that play in New Jersey are viewed as New York teams. Chris Christie saw an opportunity there to kind of pander to his uh, base and score some political points. Well, it would be interesting if if the Giants or the Jets, one or the other, actually moved to New York and then were literally in New York playing and how that might affect the dynamic. Yeah, years ago, they, they talked about building a stadium where they ended up building Hudson Yards instead right. there. And now the, the Jets and Giants played uh, this weekend. The Jets won 13-10. I forget, is Aaron Schechter Jets or Giants? <laughs> Jets, oh, so she was celebrating. A bit controversial. I didn't know that you're allowed to just put the ball down and spike it without a referee touching it. You, I know you probably don't know what I'm talking about. About, no, I have but no it, clue what you're it was an about. odd end to that game. Really? Nevertheless, congratulations. Controversy in the NFL, really? So the, so the Jets won, USC won. She had a great weekend. Oh, okay, good. Congratulations. What else we got? Uh, BamCabin.com. <laughs> okay. Uh, he asks, where will the youth be? Uh, great podcast. Really enjoy your content. The previous World Cup cycle afforded the very young U.S. men's national team a chance to gain experience in qualifying. This cycle has less opportunity to bring in and grow the younger and less experienced players. Do you think we are good with what we have now, or will this lack of playing CONCACAF teams remove opportunity for younger players to perform well? Thanks again. Yeah. Okay, so first off, uh, thank you to bamcabin.com. This actually came from uh, Apple Podcasts out there, and uh, you know, it gives you an opportunity to you know, have a little bit more space to write uh, comments, questions, and concerns, and so we really appreciate those, uh, those that are coming in, and there's a lot coming in. Um, Okay, so I'm going to call him Bam. What, what is interesting is that I get the feeling, Mossy, that when it comes to this generation of player uh, that we just kind of saw at the 22 World Cup and what is coming for 2026, we've kind of already decided <laughs> that this is it. This is what we are going with. And I know it's only two and a half years away, but it's still two and a half years away. And things can dramatically change Players can come to be, um, players can get hurt, players can, you know, attitudes can change. And yet I, I still get the feeling that from a Greg Berhalter perspective, since it was about kind of multiple cycles and this generation coming to, uh, to fruition, that there aren't going to be a whole lot of changes. And I'm not saying that there should be, but without that kind of, uh, testing phase of a, uh, a World Cup qualification campaign, because the U.S. is going to qualify automatically as one of the hosts, and without having the octagonal or even the hexagonal back in the day, where a lot of these players were blooded 
and really you saw ultimately what they were or could be in some, some, sometimes some really tested testing types of situations. I do fear that the opportunities to see this team play are going to be few and far between. We talk about Copa America next summer, but also the opportunities for new players to emerge and get, you know, a look are going to be really limited. And we might be in a certain way because of just the way this has all worked with 2026. We might be leaving some players out that potentially could make us even better and create even more depth going forward. And so I, I think that's on Greg Berhalter and his staff to make sure that they leave no stone unturned. And just because a player wasn't around in this coming of age story that is the 22 team and now the 23 team with uh, Balogun and stuff like that doesn't mean that they can't be better than what we have. And I know, look, I know dance with the ones that ones you brung, the ones that brung you, but you know, that dance doesn't begin still for another two and a half years. Although this can be spun both ways, because I've also heard people say by not having to qualify, it gives you a chance to play more friendlies against non-CONCACAF opposition, which actually is a better testing ground for different players if you're looking ahead to the World Cup. So, I mean, this could also be viewed as a positive, the fact that you don't have to qualify if you're worried about opportunities to test different players. Yeah, and and then I guess, so, but if you're a player coming up right now and you're looking at this team, you're like, all right, well, let's say you play a wing position or something like that. There's no chance that I'm breaking in. But who knows? If you, if you do, so, you have to do something pretty phenomenal. And then when you're brought in, to your point, chances are you're going to be brought in for just a, a friendly against some random team. Right. It could be a good team. And so... You're the right. window the, for you to be able to do something is smaller and the opportunity is much the smaller. The nucleus is so young yeah. that this concept of uh, breaking in younger players is sort of obsolete right now because just playing yeah. your best guys, it feels like you're, you're developing younger A players. late bloomer or one that is taking longer to mature but ultimately could be a better player in this cycle may get left out. And that's something that I think Greg Berhalter uh, and this federation have to guard against. How they go about doing it, I don't know, but it's going to take a whole lot more work and I guess a whole lot more open eyes and open minds uh, to be able to identify that, hey, there potentially could be some players out there that could make us even better. And there are no sacred cows out there. So it might be a situation where, you know, you go down the line, whether it's Polisic or Weah or Balogun uh, or Reyna and the list goes on or, or, or Musa or McKinney. Who knows? There might be somebody out there that's better. and so. I don't want us to settle, even though this is such a wonderful moment in history. And we're going to talk uh, in the next uh, segment about this generation relative to other generations. But I don't want us to settle. All right. That's a tease. Anything else? Yes, that's a tease, my friend. All right. Let's take a quick break. And like I said, we'll come back with the end of our show and my one for the road. And we'll check out you know, a, a list. Everybody loves a list. Well, I'll give you my top 10 U.S. men's national team squads of all time. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now save $30 on the American-made steel FS56 RCE trimmer. Real steel. The FS56 RCE is made in America of U.S. and global materials. Offer valid through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Okay, welcome back. It's the end of our show. And at the end of each and every show, I give you my one for the road. And we teased this uh, a couple episodes ago about 
looking back at the the talent and the depth of talent and these groups that made up previous national teams. And you know, we're going to kind of use cycles relative to the World Cup to um, segment them out. And so what we did was we actually came up with a list from, originally it was the top top nine, but we added 1950 to make it a top 10. And so when I look at these, and again, it's, it's subjective and you can have your own list and please let us know what your list is, but it's not just the moment of the world cup. It's surrounding moments as you will, will see. And just in general, how good the team was, how good I thought the team was. And it's certainly relative to history and the era that you're playing in and all that kind of stuff. And Ultimately, the proof is in the pudding in terms of the results that some of these teams had at the World Cup and, and elsewhere. All right. So coming in at uh, number 10 is the 1950 team. Uh, they, yes, they beat England, but they ended up losing to Chile and Spain uh, and not getting out, of their, uh, uh, getting out of their group. And, you know, with deference to the Joe Gaijins and the Harry Keos and the Walter Bars um, of that team in that era that kind of started it off uh, to a certain extent and oftentimes are looked at... Um, Still, I'm going to put them in at number 10. Uh, number nine would be 1990. Your Vermeeses and your Bruce Murrays, Mike Windishmans, Harks, Ramos. Um, they didn't get out of their group. And this was our first time back, obviously, in many, many decades. And we took a predominantly collegiate type of team and we looked collegiate in the way that we uh we played but you got to start somewhere and this was the start of an incredible uh run of appearances at world cups but as far as the actual team i don't i think it pales in comparison to some of these other teams that we have uh coming in at number eight uh <laughs> the dysfunctional 1998 team of which i was a part of uh, didn't not only didn't get out of the group stage, but finished last in that World Cup. Um, we were starting players like Mazinoff and Deering and David Regie. Um, and as I said before, it was just a complete show on and off the field, ultimately at that World Cup, um, even though you know we qualified. And if you look at just the actual names and what could have been and the talent, that's great. But in that moment, with what that team was in at the World Cup and the surrounding years, it was not a team that was functioning as a team in any sense of the word. So that comes in 1998. Uh, uh, 1998 comes in at eight. Uh, number seven would be 2018. You know, you got players like Bobby Wood and Beasler and Gonzalez and Josie Altidore. And it, as if it needs to be said, the biggest... Well, until this, until this summer, I would say the biggest national team failure uh, by, by the U.S. of not qualifying for the World Cup and what that meant to the program, what that meant to the players, and what that meant to soccer in America. And that was on their watch. So they come in there. Uh, then we go to number six, 2006. Out of the group, uh, ultimately lost to Ghana and Italy. Players like Gucci Onyewu, Bobby Convey, Chris Albright, Brian Ching, 
but also Carlos Bocanegra and Jimmy Conrad. And so while sometimes some of these players are associated with failures, they also in, in the past or the future can also be associated with incredible success. But again, it's a snapshot of, of who they were in and about those years uh, relative to the World Cup. All right, now we get into my, uh, my top five. Coming in at number five would be the 2014 group. Uh, they lost to Belgium. Uh, they beat Ghana in the group. They tied Portugal. And then we know uh, they ultimately lost to, uh, uh, to Germany. But you're talking about your Jermaine Joneses, your Clint Dempsey's, um, uh, let's see, Brooks, Bradley, Howard. Um, solid, solid group. And you know, when it comes to Howard, a you know, historical type of performance uh, that will live long in terms of his, um, his saves against Belgium. All right. Uh, and, you know, this is the team, by the way, that kind of started this whole debate off uh, between the current generation and 2014. So I got them coming in at, at five. Coming in at four is this 2000, and we're going to say 2023 generation. I know they just went through a, uh, a World Cup in 2022, but we also know that someone like Balogun was not a part of this. So you know, your Polisics and Reinas and Weyas and the list goes on and on and on and what this team is. And we talk about them in this sense of this is the most talented generation that we have ever had. And I do think you can make an argument for that. But I also think that we have yet to see it come to fruition. It's just something that we talk about. So they're going to come in in fourth place. Now, listen, I know that I hold near and dear this 94 team, Tab Ramos, Balboa, Tony Miola, Kobe Jones, John Hark, Sarah Guinalda, uh, ultimately got out of the group and lost to eventual champions, Mossy's Brazil in the 1994 World Cup. So I got them coming in at, uh, at number three. And I just think that the talent that existed and the age in which that talent existed was a whole lot better than people give it, uh, give it credit for. Uh, I come in at number two. I got the 2010 team, and this was, this was hard between one and two. You're looking at, obviously, Michael Bradley, a, you know, a prime Landon Donovan, a Gucci Onyewu, even players like Jay Demerit, uh, Beasley, Dempsey, all these types of players. Lost in the round of 16 to Ghana in the World Cup, but also keep in mind that this is the group that beat the number one team in the world, Spain, in the Confederations Cup. So I just think that this was a really, really talented team that – yeah, they failed in terms of getting past Ghana, but just in totality, when you look at them and who they were in 2010, I think it's absolutely fair for me to have them come in at number two. And then coming in at number one, and it's not just relative to what they did in the World Cup, but not for nothing, uh, losing in the quarterfinals. And we've talked about it before, possibly going to the semifinals with that handball and what would have been a red card if they hadn't managed to pull it out there. I got uh, 2022 coming in. Wonderful balance of old and new players like Landon Donovan and, sorry, O2, uh, not 2022, O2, the O2 uh, team. But players like Beasley and Landon, kind of their coming out party and just not even knowing that they should be under pressure and playing in front of the world with a, just a beautiful, reckless, youthful exuberance. And then players like uh, Mathis and Beasley and McBride and, you know, players like, Pablo Mastriani, I think Bruce Arena really got the balance correct of this team. And he had it correct before, and it translated into good results and obviously the best performance ever from a uh, U.S. men's national team in the modern era at a World Cup. 
Mossy, agree, disagree? A few thoughts. <laughs> Uh, Josie in the 2014 versus 2023 debate was sort of playing on people's nostalgia. You know, Mm -hmm. for all the talk about recency bias, the more prevalent bias in sports media is towards the past. We love to glorify, romanticize, mythologize the past. Uh, I wonder how he would feel about 94 being put above 2014. Would he find that ridiculous? Yeah, of course he did. We're we're all going (laughs) to stand, as the kids say, for our own generation and for, for our own team. But, you know, it's, again... This is subjective. So if Josie wants to make his own list, he can have his own list. And he already talked about how he feels that 2014 team was, uh, was better ultimately than uh, what the 2023 is. Come 2026, do you expect what's now the 2023 yes. team to yes. shoot up already, to already one already on that list? Your question. Yeah, absolutely. That, th- these are the expectations is for 2026, for this group of players to do things that we have not seen in the past. So you buy the fact that this is the most talented team the U.S. has ever had. It's just a matter of them developing sure. over the next yeah. three years and then going out and doing it. Absolutely. And that and it, and it is not turnkey. It doesn't just happen. And, you know, to which much is given, much is expected. And I think the expectations of this team, I don't think they're unrealistic. You know, again, and when I say what is given to this team, yeah, the talent that they have, the depth of talent, the pathways that they have, the opportunities that they have, the resources that they have. When I go out and I see what the national team, whether it's the men's or women's national team, has at their disposal, where the staff far outnumbers the actual players out there running around, and they have people that whose sole job is to make sure that they are solid, not just in body, but even in mind. There are no excuses anymore. All right. And so, yeah, I think that that I think it's completely fair for us to expect something the likes of which we have not seen. Now, how does that manifest? Does that mean winning a World Cup? Not necessarily. But it does mean doing things that we haven't seen before in terms of where you get to, but also in the way that you get to those places. Also, younger U.S. national team fans, I don't think realize the degree to which after that 2002 run to the quarterfinals, Mm -hmm. and if not for the handball, they could have gotten even further. uh, The narrative in this country was that this was the breakthrough moment. The U.S. had arrived, and four years later, they were going to be in a position to win the World Cup. And they actually shot up into the top five in the FIFA rankings. Remember that? And went into the 2006 World Cup with some people. I remember Eric Winalda on ESPN uh, pegging the U.S. as legit contenders to win that World Cup. And they ended up crashing out in the group stage. Although, in what was an overall disappointing campaign, there was that incredible Italy game. Do you remember where the U.S. finished with nine players? That was one of Landon Donovan's greatest ever performance where they actually got a draw against the eventual winners of that World Cup. Uh, So, yeah, that was an interesting 2016. Yeah, I mean, well, I just... It's not always linear, right? right? And I think everybody understands that. And we've had, uh, overall, we've had incredible progress. But within that progress, there have been stops and starts, and there have been steps back in order to go two steps forward. But the obviously, the ultimate goal, purely from a results standpoint, is to win the World Cup. But it's also, it's to change the way, you know, to, to borrow Greg Berhalter's mandate to change the way we think about ourselves and the way the world thinks about us and the credibility associated with what we do on a consistent basis. And if you want to learn about the 98 team, I recommend the Fiasco podcast, uh, <laughs> yeah. Roger Bennett. Um, now, 1990, you were not on that team, but you traveled to Italy to watch those games, right? Yes, I did. And again, it was just like a we were happy to be there. And I think the guys that were on that team um, 
recognized that they were a little bit out of the depth. Although, you know, speaking of great performances against Italy, they actually had a really good performance against uh, against Italy. No, and Walter Zenga making an incredible sat on the save ball yeah, off, of, uh, off of Vermes. So yeah, yeah it, they you know we had little moments, but we were under no illusions that that we were able to compete with the elites of uh, of the world. Uh, I will say 1950 should be higher. I know that was a late ad. You were only going to do modern times and right. nine teams you actually knew. But a team that beat England, probably the most famous victory in U.S. national team history, cannot be behind a team that didn't even qualify for the World Cup. Okay, fine. But you, again, you can, you can have your own list. Uh, so where would you put 94 then? Uh, because like I said, I know I'm biased and stuff like that. And keep in mind, when I say this 94 team, it's also the surrounding area. So this team also... Not for nothing, but had the Copa America experience. You want to talk about talk about beating England. You want to talk about beating yeah. the big teams. So it's it's it's, it's tricky. General. We'd have to define what we're sure. including here. But yeah, I, no that that ninety five Copa America performance adds a lot of weight to that generation. I, I agree with that. Uh, I mean, three 0 win over Argentina, got to the semis, so very impressive. So you're okay with this list? Uh, there's right. nothing here that jumps okay. out as being all ridiculous. Right, right. I'm sure my, there's somebody else. My number one sure. would be 1930. You're, Got third place, Bert Patino, the first hat trick in World Cup history. Uh, I should okay. So if I if we did the eleven, right? All right. <laughs> so if we did the uh, the top eleven. I would put the nineteen thirty team. Then um, I'd put it right. Let's see. I'd put it okay. I would put it ahead of fourteen, but behind twenty three. So it would come in in that fifth place. Then if I had to put that in. There you go. All right. Listen, but let, let us know what you think. Uh, agree, disagree. It doesn't matter. Let us know what you think out there of this list because we promised it to you and we have now given it to you. And, and not for nothing, but for those that do watch the show, you can see that when it comes to hair and when it comes to aesthetics, 94 is far and away number one. Any way you slice it. I mean, long live faux denim. Uh, all right. We will uh, you know, finish up this episode of the uh, State of the Union. And we want to thank everybody for uh, reviewing and downloading and subscribing and doing all the different things that you do on all the different platforms. We talked about Spotify now with video. Uh, we talked about Apple Podcasts and the reviews that are going on over there. So however you ultimately get it, whether you're listening to it or watching and listening uh, to it, we appreciate that you are a part of the State of the Union. We will talk to you again later on this, uh, this week. Uh, until then, and as always, though, my friends, size. The day.